Fortress Canine Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Protection Dog Podcast. Um, these podcasts are going to be in the episode 80 through 85 range. I'll probably use this same intro um, because we have uh, three talks that I did at an event in North Carolina. It was called Prepper Camp 2021. And I was invited to go there and speak about security dogs, using dogs for protection. And uh, a lot of the people there had uh, rural properties and that sort of thing. And, uh, and so I did three different talks. Um, I set up a single talk to do um, that was, I'm just going to supposedly repeat it three times. And what ended up happening was we got such a diverse group of questions. The talks very quickly turned into Q&As, which was totally fine. Uh, but each evening was essentially a totally unique talk, all based on the same topics. But because of the questions and that sort of thing, they ended up becoming uh, kind of their own thing. So I'm going to put one of those up every other week. And then in the in-between weeks, we did a, um, I did an uh, interview with Pat Watson from Uncensored Tactical. And, uh, and so we did a recording for Protection Dog Podcast specifically. Uh, where Pat talks about um, the realities of being in a fight. Pat was a tier one uh, counter-narcotics guy uh, for the Coast Guard. And then um, we immediately did another podcast for his podcast, Uncensored Tactical. If you don't follow that, I recommend you go check that out. And, uh, and we did one over there, more dog-related. So it'll be uh, one of the Prepper Camp Talks. One of the interviews, the second day of the prepper camp, next interview, third day of prepper camp. So that'll be the next couple of weeks for you guys. Um, I'll probably use this same deal. Oh, hang on. We got a mute. We got a live video just popped up. I've been waiting for Um So I'll be putting this in. There we go. Uh, they paused and then started up again. So I'll be putting this into each of those. Um, so you'll put, hear the same thing uh, the next time around. You can just go fast forward, fast forward, fast forward uh, three or four times and you'll jump over. All right, with that, enjoy the talk we did at Prepper Camp. So my background, I spent 15 years in the military. I was a military police officer uh, deployed to the Pentagon right after 9-11. I was in Afghanistan in 2003. Uh, I was in Iraq in 2009. And then I went to Bogota, Colombia in 2011, and I spent about seven months down there with special operations guys uh, doing a bunch of stuff. I was never special operations, I also was not a military canine handler. So I learned all of my military canine stuff. So, is there a power button? Is there a power button? In the dog stuff that I did was basically on my own time. So if I wasn't deployed uh, every four day weekend, almost every month in the military, uh, I was up training dogs, uh, much to the chagrin of my wife, but this is what I'm passionate about and obsessed with, and uh, that's why I do full time now. Um, so I've been training dogs now for about 20 years. Uh, I've been running my businesses full time for about 15 years. So uh, I've been doing this for a little while. One of the things that we really try to focus on is the realistic application of a dog or any kind of defensive application or concept in the real world. Right, so one of the problems that you run into in whether it's the dog world or any of your self-defense kind of world as people are thinking through is you tend to get people that are like, this is how you do it. Right? This is how you do this thing, whatever this thing is. This is how you hold a pistol grip. You have to hold a pistol grip this way or it's wrong. And uh, and you'll have one person that says you do it this way and another person says you do it 
that way. And the question always is like, well, what if I'm seatbelted into my car and the person I have to shoot at is behind me? How does that grip work then? Well, the answer is it doesn't. You have to change your grip if the situation dictates it, right? So there are always variations in fighting. There's always variations in an impact scenario. There's always situations that you could come up with 15 different scenarios where whatever that one thing is that somebody says you have to do doesn't work, right? So for realistic application of protection training, it's much more about your ability to function and deal with stress than it is about a specific tool that you use or a specific technique that you use. So when we started getting into the work with our dogs, it was things like, well, how do we counter knife attacks with the dogs? How do we counter baseball bat attacks with dogs, right? Because if somebody's attacking you, there's a good chance they have a weapon, and if they have a weapon that they can use on you, they can use that same weapon on your dog if you have to use it for self-defense. <laughs> so we started training for those things, and we allow the dogs, you know, we, we use training tools, training weapons that hurt but don't injure. Right? So if I stab a dog with one of my training knives, it hurts, but it doesn't injure them. And so we give them the opportunity to figure out how to counter first, and if they don't, I go, okay, you're gonna learn a hard lesson here, whack, and we jab them in the ribs with it, and they go, ow, that hurts. And then they realize, that thing can hurt me, I better do something about it. So some dogs will counter one way, and some dogs will counter another way. And I don't force a dog to do it the way I want them to do it, I let the dog figure it out, and then that dog does it that way from that point forward. Right? And of course there's similarities, but we don't get into like, it has to be exactly this way every single time. Uh, because just like two, no two people fight the same, right? even if they're similar build and height and all that other kind of stuff, one thing's gonna work better for one person and another one's gonna work better for another person. So we take that same approach with the dogs. Um, there is no one single thing that will guarantee you're gonna win in a fight, right? And so we bring that approach into what we do with the dogs. When you are, um, a lot of my clients that, or people that are interested in becoming clients, especially on the training side when they want to learn things, I used to work with a couple of Navy SEAL guys, and, um, and we would run these like knife defense courses and things like that, right? And a lot of the people that would contact you, they never said these words exactly, but the, the question was always this to this effect. Okay, I want to come and I want to learn how to do knife defense, and I don't ever want to get cut or stabbed, right? And here's the reality of a fight. You get in a fist fight, you get punched. If you get in a knife fight, you get cut or stabbed. If you get in a gun fight, there's a chance you're gonna get shot. And if you fight with a dog, you're gonna get bit. And if you're not willing to do that and have the mentality to win anyway, that doesn't mean that you just go, oh, who stabbed me, right? Obviously, we're gonna attempt to minimize any injury or damage. But if you're not willing to engage the fight knowing that information, because that's real world, right? If you think, oh yeah, this technique is gonna let me, you know, disarm this person with the knife, and then I'm gonna be good, then you're like Jim Carrey, no, you bet your elbow, you have to keep it like this when you fight, you did it wrong, right? If you haven't seen that side of that live skit, go look it up, it's hilarious. Um, but if you, if you think that, and you go into a fight, and you do your thing, whatever your thing is, and it doesn't work, all of a sudden your whole, your whole uh, solution, your whole strategy just fell apart, right? And in a fight, it's always going to fall apart. You know, I think Mike Tyson was the one that said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And uh, in the army, we have a saying that says, no, uh, no clan survives first contact with you. Right, as soon as bullets start flying, fists start going, knives start flinging, no matter how you plan for it to go, it won't go that way. So, but that's the reality of fight. That's the reality of defense. That's the reality of being attacked by somebody. Because if I tell you, okay, I want you to take your dog and walk that way and I'm gonna attack you there. First of all, I'm not going to attack you there because you're expecting it. 
Secondly, if you knew I was going to attack you there, walk there, right? So you try and create a scenario that's as close to realism as you can when you're running your drills and your training and everything else. And that's how we get into it. So um, the other thing that we try and, number one, we train with our dogs, but it's really important for us to communicate to our clients is you avoid almost all the fights in your life by not going to stupid places and doing stupid things with stupid people, right? So the people that I know that start telling me about all the fights they've been in, I'm like, either I want to hear you say, and I was stupid, and I don't do that stuff anymore, or I'm not selling you a dog because I don't want you taking my dog to biker bars and getting fights. I don't want you taking my dog to stupid places and doing stupid things because you and them are going to end up getting yourselves killed. Right? Or you're going to hurt people that you shouldn't be fighting with in the first place. And we train our dogs to fight human beings. We don't train our dogs to fight sleeves. Because fighting sleeves is not what a dog needs to do. Right? Police train their dogs to fight and hold because their purpose is to apprehend bad guys. And so they dogs are faster than humans. That guy's running away from me, but he's a felon, or I know he's done something bad. Go get that guy for me, dog. The dog chases them down, grabs a hold of them, holds on. Usually they kind of fall on the ground. It hurts, it's painful, but you know what? I've been bit hundreds of times. It, you can fight through it. And um, and then the police officer runs up, puts hands on them, and puts handcuffs on them. Well, if I sell you a dog, and you get attacked by a 200-pound guy in a parking lot all by yourself, you don't want to go hands-on with that guy, right? That's a stupid approach to, to tell a small-framed female that she's going to eat a small-framed guy, too. You're going to fight a 200-pound guy, and that's that's your solution, that's your strategy, right? If you get attacked, fight back. Well, if you have no other choice to fight back, then you do. But in that scenario, you should be fighting to create distance from that person, right? The purpose is not to subdue that guy because that's not how real fights work. They're not ring fights, right? The purpose is to get away and get the safety. So you have a dog, the dog engages, you run, get in your car, and call your dog back to you. That sort of thing. So we try to look at the whole concept of defense and protection from a realistic, real-world perspective. And um, the, so what does the dog bring to you when you're looking at, okay, so how does this really work in the real world? Well, number one, you move with a dog that has an intimidating appearance, right? And there's, you know, the three dogs that we use all have that, but there are other dogs that have intimidating appearances, Rottweilers, Doberman pictures, you know, a lot of these dogs. Exactly, look at that. Do not mess And um, so that alone, especially if your dog is obedient, right? It's walking beside you, it's moving smoothly with you through public. People go, mm, yeah, I probably don't want to mess with that person, right? So we create a deterrent that, you know, a lot of the uh, self-defense training that's situational awareness, make eye contact, all of those sorts of concepts. The whole point is to make yourself a harder target. Right? When somebody sees somebody who's self-confident, somebody sees somebody who's aware of their surroundings, they see somebody who makes eye contact with them, especially if you hold it for just a second, people go, hey, they just held eye contact with me. There's a sensation that you get, a connection that you make when you do that with a person, and if they're meaning you harm, they typically go, mm, I want somebody who's not quite so confident that they're going to do that. And um, so when you move with a dog, you create a deterrent concept, right? People know you have a dog on your property, even if you don't move with them. They go, yeah, there's a dog there. It barks pretty ferociously. We might not want to go there. And and so that is step number one. That's one of the benefits you get. Dogs also give a show of force. So one of the interesting things about a lot of the concepts and the methods in the whole protection realm is the typical person 
Let's say that you went and got a concealed weapons permit, carry your weapon with you. So now you're protected, right? You have a weapon that you can use. And assuming you know how to use it and all of that kind of stuff, you're still limited by this. I can talk to you and then I can draw my gun and shoot you. And there's this massive gray area in between those two things. That's why police officers carry the baton and the taser and the pepper spray and all of the other tools that they have at their disposal because it's, there's an escalation of force that they have to use. If bad guy does A, you can do one step above that. You can go to B. If they do B, you can go to C and so on. As an average person, if you carry a knife or a gun, both those are considered deadly weapons. Right? A dog biting somebody is not considered a deadly weapon. Now, it can happen, especially if you just leave a dog to fight somebody and a dog's very well trained um, and that person goes into panic mode, there's a good chance because with our dogs, if you fall down, they start targeting this space right here. And if they are left to just do that, there's a moderate chance that that person will die. But our dogs also, typically once a dog engages a threat, all that person wants is for that to stop. Right? It's not 100%, but that's pretty typical. Um, I've worked with a lot of Tier 1 operators, Debrut, CAG, the JTF2 in Canada, uh, some of the Israeli guys, and these guys will walk into a room and they'll look at every person there, and they're like, yeah, I can take you a here. And then they walk past that, and they're like, but I don't want to get Right? And it's like, dude, you've killed like 300 people. I don't know how many people you've killed, but you've shot a lot of people. And you've been in like real, like true life and death fights hand to hand with people and you walk up to that and you're like, I don't want to get bit, right? Because there's just this visceral thing in us that says, I don't want to encounter that. I don't want to confront it. I don't want to fight with it because I don't know how, right? And when you fought, fought with them for years, like I have, you look at them and you go, yeah, hey, I see what you're thinking, knock it off. But when you've never experienced that, it's a pretty intimidating thing. So you've got a deterrent, you've got a show of force, which is anytime a dog barks, right, you create that visceral, I don't know if I want any part of that. And then, should you need it, because every once in a while you have either a black or crazy person, somebody on drugs, whatever the case may be, the dog can actually engage and go full on into the fight for you. So, um, and it's just something that no matter what weapon you have, you have a baseball bat, a 12 gauge shotgun, a pistol, and it, it, for the people who are criminals, for the people who target other people and take advantage of them, those things are normal commonplace things for them. Right now, we're not talking petty crimes where they're like trying to burgle and get in and get out without being seen. We're talking about violent encounters. People who are used to violent encounters, they're not really intimidated by the weapons you have. And usually they have something equal to or similar to what you might have, right? So you've got a whole situation there and we want to make sure that we can use the dog properly. So, yes. The dog only that's a very good question. So we have two different, the question was if you couldn't hear it, do they engage only on command or will they engage on their own? So there's, there's two scenarios we allow our dogs to engage in. And we put this very firmly into their training, we call it stability training, which is don't put your mouth on anything I didn't tell you to put your mouth on. There's one exception to that rule and that's if somebody goes physically hands on with you. So that could happen quickly in an ambush scenario uh, or it could happen in a situation where you're in interacting with somebody and then they go hands on. And if that happens, we say that's the only time the dog can break obedience. Everything we do with the dog is considered obedience. If I tell my dog to bite you, that's obedience. If I tell my dog to sit, that's obedience. If I tell her to lay there and just chill out, that's obedience, right? So everything we do with the dogs is obedience. The one time they can break it is if somebody goes hands on and they you know, immediately break and engage with that person. Um, if we're having a, a confrontation and it's escalating and I say, don't come any closer, you'll be bit. 
and I can look at my dog and put him on what we call a watch command. And the different personalities of the dogs, they'll sometimes do this a little bit differently. Um, about 30 to 60 percent, I know that's a big range because it varies depending on what dogs are on the ground, uh, will bark and lunge at the person. Um, about 30 percent of the, the leftover portion will, they just get real intense. And like they close their mouth, they just stare and they're just waiting. And they usually kind of take kind of a step or two forward. And if you look at that dog, and if you know nothing about dogs, you might not know what that means. But you know, when a dog don't, they're probably not getting ready to bite you. They're going, they're getting ready to bite you. Right? So as soon as you see that, if you don't know what's going on, you tell your dog, and I won't say it in the vocal that I say it, but let me see, calm down, bro. So we go, watch them. And they go, it just got serious. And they behave in a manner that says, hey, you better stay back here if I can get you there. And then if that person comes within, well, I told you, if you get any closer, you're getting bit. And our leads are typically six or seven feet long, so that's kind of your safe bubble, right? That's kind of typically what's considered safe. And, uh, and anywhere within that range, as soon as that person steps in, the dog engages. Now, yes? We are going to do a bite demonstration. So if we get to like, what is it? I think we'll go four to five. So if it's like 4.45 and I'm still running, I told my wife to raise her hand, but she may uh, forget she's back there filming or I might not even notice she's there. So be like, hey, hey, don't forget about the dog demo. Yes, you're gonna see her chew on me in just a few minutes. <laughs> yes, sir. Will you allow the dog to engage you let go of the leash? So, it, well, again, that would depend, right? So um, typically the answer would be yes. Typically if the dog engages, you drop the lead. And so I tell people, if you're doing everything right, right? If you're doing like being aware of your situation, the dog engages with threat. First of all, I want to make sure that was a threat, right? And if not, I'm correcting me, knock that crap off, right? which I should be doing long before there's actually an engagement. But if the person's actually a threat, the dog engages with threat. I probably want to let go of the dog, let them work that threat for a second while I make sure he doesn't have any bites, right? So I check my area, make sure that I know that's the only threat in my area so I don't become hyper focused on what I think is the only threat. Once I confirm that is the only threat, at that point, and this all happens in like a second and a half, right, two seconds, is that person probably, if they're like, get them off, get them off, I just want it over, out, let's go, and they out and they come back to their hand. And um, so I don't want them to continue causing damage beyond any threat, right? When you get to the point where, because here's another thing that a lot of people ignore when it comes to a fight, is you got the fight, and then you got the fight after the fight which is now you've caused injury to somebody, whether it was with your fists, with a knife, with a gun, with a dog, whatever it was, they were the aggressor. But oh, the poor victim. And now they have to sue you, and, or you know, heaven forbid you actually kill the person. Oh, they were just a, a you know, poor little boy who didn't do anything wrong. And their family now is coming after all the money, right? So there's always a fight after the fight. Well, you wanna, you wanna set yourself up, not in a uh, devious way, but in a true, like, want to make sure that you do things right because you want to sleep at night after a fight and if you kill somebody you need to make sure that was a righteous kill and if you injure somebody you want to make sure it was righteous yes sir a follow-up question sell weapon carry insurance is there some kind of there, there are actually insurance policies you can get on on dogs um they're typically like an umbrella policy um, so if you have enough money that that is of concern, having an umbrella policy on your dog is a pretty good idea. Most people don't make enough money that that's really much of a concern. Um, even the people who buy our dogs and our dogs start, our trained protection dogs start at $20,000. 
And um, most of my clients are nurses, army guys, and things like that. They pay their dogs off over a year or so, and, um, and then they take their dogs home. So nobody's coming after them for millions and millions of dollars. Um, but you still want to make sure, you know, first of all, I warned the person. Secondly, they were actually a threat. You have to be able to articulate, this was a threat. That's why I did what I did. Um, you know, so you don't just, somebody starts yelling at you or somebody's following you, just turn around and go, take them. That would be setting you up. And in all reality, right, we're, we don't want to hurt people that we don't have to hurt. We don't want to hurt anybody. But if you force me to, to defend myself, then I'm going to be violent. I'm going to be violent very fast. And then I need to be ready to end that violence very, very fast. Because the ideal, the hope is, you go, holy crap, that was a shit ton of violence. I'm done. I want it to be over. Now it's over. Now either get on the ground, don't move, look away from me if you want to stay there and deal with that, or I'm out of here. We'll call the cops and meet at that gas station a mile down the road, and then we can come back and get out that office. And that'll all depend on, on who the person is being attacked with. Does that answer your question? Perfect. Any, anything else? Um, I'd love for these to be interactive. Yes, sir. Did the dogs ever misinterpret affection with violence? So, my dogs, the answer is I've been doing this 15 years and have had zero instances of that. The, you do see it in the dog world quite a bit. And my belief on why that happens is because most dogs are brought into bite work as a kid. And so they use the towel tugs on the puppies and they transition that to a bite tube tug, which is made out of bite tube material, but it's just a little like cylinder tug, right? They'll play with that, they'll have to tug the pillow, then they'll transition to the bigger pillow and then to the sleeve and then to the suit. And so the dog's been brought up thinking bite work is a game because they don't want to overstress the dog, right? They say, oh, the dog won't bite as hard if you overstress it, so we don't want to overstress it. Again, there's also, think of most police dogs, um, there's a, a very limited time frame. They're only getting $9,000 a dog. That's the most any agency in the U.S. can pay for a dog. Very few exceptions. And so if someone is trying to bring a dog to the level that we bring a dog, that we're getting paid $20,000 for, for $9,000, that means you get less than half of the time invested in the dog or they're not making money. Right? Because I spend a year with your dog almost every single day, and that's why they're $20,000 dogs. And so... Um, when you bring a dog up thinking that bite work is a game, it's very easy for the dog to misinterpret something, right? And it's often something like a big jacket, like a goofy jacket, kind of looks like a bite suit, um, or the way someone moves. And like children tend to do this, and that's when it gets really bad. Is children tend to, that's a common type of movement used when bringing a dog into bite work. So what we do in our bite work is, um, from the time we start our pups, anywhere between eight and twelve weeks old, to bite work. And so they're you know, this big, and they have, a, they have two choices. You can do nothing, and I will hurt you. Or you can fight back, and I will let you win. Now, they don't know they're going to win, but they, the only way they win is if they fight back. And now when they're a puppy, we're going, right? Now, you saw, she responded to that. It might have hurt just a little bit, but it's not going to hurt a puppy. But it hurts for a puppy, right? When you're a puppy, that's like, whoa, holy crap, you just pinched me. And, um, and so that's the only choice they have. So for us, Bite work is never a game. It's always at the, whatever the level the dog is currently, it's always very serious for that dog. And so our dogs don't go, oh, there's something fun happening right now. I should bite that person. They sense aggression, which typically is a spiked adrenaline amount in your body, and they pick it up as soon as it happens. And uh, like when their handler gets nervous, I'll see the dog's reaction, and I'm like, you just had a tingle go up your spine, didn't you? Yep, that's adrenaline. 
going right up, right into your system, and your dog sensed it immediately and went, where's the threat? And they started looking around for a threat. And so if you have that situation happen, or they sense it in another person, because if I'm getting ready to attack somebody, even if I've done it before, I still get that, that adrenaline pump goes into my system, and I'm ready for an actual fight. They sense that in other people, and that's the only time they like that. So when we're, yes sir. Are you handing off totally trained dogs, or are you towards the end of the training also training the owner so to properly the, handle that dog so that they don't make it Yes. So what we do with our dogs is we have three different levels of dogs. So when you say totally trained, the dog has always been trained throughout its whole life. Whatever you allow the dog to do, you'll get more of. Whatever you don't allow the dog to do, you'll stop doing, right? Um, but for the levels that each dog is, is listed at when you purchase them, they're fully trained when you get them to that level. And then I spend five days with all of my clients. So none of my protection dogs go home if you don't spend five days with me. And I've had people say, I want an executive protection dog. I want it tomorrow and I don't have time to train with you. I go, bye-bye. Because if you're not going to train with me, you don't get one of my dogs. And it's not fair to the dog and it's not fair to the person. So it's only, sorry, it's only five days training at the end or do you do like some kind of an interactive with okay. the yep. person for so, all the time? Probably the majority of my clients, they do the five days at the end of the dog's training. They come and they spend five, like basically eight hour days with me. And then we do quarterly follow-up training the first year. We do biannual the second year and annually the third year through the fifth year. So by the typically by the end of the second year, there's really not much left for them to learn. The things that they're doing that I say I probably wouldn't recommend is they just decided, yeah, I'm gonna do it anyway, right? And it's usually never safety things. It's just little like you know nuances that I've been training dogs and I like them to be at a certain discipline level. When I see it, I'm like, eh, that annoys me. But okay, you want to do it. Um, the clients that are local though, and I wish more would take advantage of this, but when you're in California and you're buying a dog from somebody in Florida, you can't do it as much, is if you're local to me or you threw out the dog the time you're paying the dog off, is all of my public classes, which are every Saturday, um, you can come in and I hand you your dog that you have under contract, and I go, training is over there, let's go. And so you train with your dog through that whole process if you want to. And I've had clients that will fly in like once a month. I've had clients that come in every couple months. I have uh, most of the local clients will come every week and they'll train with their dogs. And so the benefit to that is the first three days of your uh, delivery um, with, with us anyway, is teaching you how to handle the dog and introducing you and basically teaching you basic stuff, right? Basic handling techniques. Here's how you make your dog get in the car. Here's how you make him go on a crate. Here's how you make him sit. Uh, let's go walk around public, that sort of thing. And, um, and then the fourth and fifth days are when we do your protection training. So we start doing the fight work and all that stuff. That's for two reasons. One is I want the dog to be slightly familiar with you before we start doing that. And the second thing is I've got quite a few clients tell me, I'm really glad you waited until I spent three days with this dog to do that because I would be terrified of my dog if I hadn't gotten to know them and realized how good a dog they are. And then I saw that first thing, right? <laughs> And um, because it can be very intimidating if you're not used to it, that you realize once the dog bonds to you, you're the person that's going to be doing that for other people. But, yeah. The which part? So the, your baseline bonding is typically about uh, four to six weeks. So I tell people when they take their dogs home, I'm like, don't go do anything crazy with your dog for the next four to six weeks. Just hang out with them as much as you can, spend time with them, do basic obedience stuff, expect and require basic obedience stuff. Don't go pushing your dog to try and do something brand new in that time frame. Um, and then over the first year, you'll see it continue to really deepen. 
and uh, and then it kind of plateaus off a little bit after that. But you know, after you've had a dog for five years, it's a different connection that you have with it in that one year. But your four to six week mark is where you really see them go. Okay, it looks like you're my person. I'm not going back to those other people. So I guess me and you are together for the rest of the life. Do they have like anxiety? Very, very seldom. So every once in a while, for one or two days, they'll whine a little bit. They're crazy. But okay, I don't know where this place is. Uh, you know, it's in a strange environment, blah, blah, blah. But when you show up, day one, we spend the day together, and then I go, all right, take your dog, see you tomorrow morning. You go back to your hotel room with your dog. I go, here, I'll let you borrow this crate for the week. And they sleep in the crate at night, and so my clients are like, we're already sleeping in the bed together. And I'm like, listen, you want your dog to sleep in the bed with you? Go for it. My personal dogs do. None of my dogs that are being trained for other people sleep in bed. Okay. And you want to sleep in the bed? No. Right, so I have them all trained for the person doesn't want their dog on the couch, I don't ever get on the couch. So we take a moment to sign and we have to the couch. And uh, because a lot of people never know furniture is right? And um, so you're spending that little five days bonding on your dog the whole time you're there. And, uh, and you know, sometimes we'll look at the people and we're going to take my dog out of the couch. Yep, good luck with the only problems. And I've got zero calls for issues. Every once in a while it's like, hey, should I feed my dog right now? Yeah, those sorts of questions. But um, I, I've never had anybody have an issue getting rid of home because our dogs are not aggressive. This is our dogs, and uh, this is tends to be their behavior, their mannerisms. 99.999% of your life, you're getting a concealed weapons permit. You don't run around shooting people, right? You're getting a protection dog. The hope is you never have to use it, even if you're at some level of risk. The deterrent should be enough that you don't have that issue, right? Hopefully. And then, but if you do, just like you don't carry around a gun with no ammunition in it, you go, hey, stay back. Oh, uh, you're not gonna pull the trigger. Click, click, click. Oh crap, now I'm in trouble, right? So if you are gonna carry a weapon, you want that weapon to be loaded, or it's not worth carrying around. If you're gonna have a dog move with you, there is a deterrent factor to a dog. You need that dog. And one thing to, to mention with dogs being protective versus dogs protecting, okay? Almost all mid to large scale dogs and some of your smaller dogs, will be protective of the people they're bonded to. So they perceive a threat to the people they're bonded to, they will posture. You've seen this with all sorts of animals in nature, right? When there's a female involved and she's ready to be bred, the males get together and they fight over her. 99% of that is posture. They never really seriously hurt each other. Um, they might walk away with a headache if they're rams or something like that, but that's pretty much the extent that they go and then one walks away and says, okay, you're good. Um, so dogs will posture um, and that's the protective nature. They'll bark, they'll like growl, they may even lunge a couple times. But if the person goes, yeah, you ain't doing nothing, and comes in and bites you, 99.99999% of those dogs, and most of them won't even make it to that stage, but they will run to the back of the house and piss themselves. Because it's unfair to expect a creature this size to fight a pinnacle predator, especially one who's already demonstrated, I'm aggressive, right? I'm a pinnacle among the pinnacle predators, because all human beings are a pinnacle predator. So, um, you, you want to go into all of your scenarios and situations with realistic expectations. If you have a dog, it may growl, it may bark, and that might do it. But if it doesn't, like especially if, if the person doesn't realize you have a dog, right? So in a home invasion, this may be a spur of the moment home invasion situation. They don't know you have a dog in the house. They kick your front door and six guys rush in your front door. Your dog ain't doing no posture. They're going to go, oh shit, and take off, right? And because uh, it's just overwhelming to them. That's just, it, it's unrealistic and unfair. That'd be like expecting your 15-year-old who's never been in a fight to jump up and grab the gun and defend you when somebody walks in your house. I mean, maybe they will, 
but you know what the vast majority are going to do? Holy crap, run for it, right? Because that's our natural survival instinct. Um, so in order to train a dog to face a pinnacle predator and to fight what may very likely be to their death that day, right? That is, that is requires a lot of stress inoculation. And so that's why we started dogs at eight weeks old. Beginning, they're like, Oh crap, there's a great big guy and he's trying to fight me. By the time they're her size, they're like, Yeah, I've been fighting guys since I was like, It's big, so you're not the man. And they walk around and kind of look at everybody like, I don't think anybody's out here. Because we want that level of confidence in them. And then when we fight them and I kick him and punch him and stab him or try to stab him, she won't even stab her anymore. They're just like, Uh uh, you ain't doing that to me. And, uh, and I'm bruised up through my suit every week. I wear gauntlets, which I won't put on tonight, but when I'm doing a lot of dogs repetitively, I have these thick leather gauntlets that go on each forearm, and she's really like, hey, if I come right up here, and if I hit you with the bag, like last two weeks ago, I don't know if they're still there, and it bruises all over both triceps, all on this area on both sides. And, uh, and they hit me in the legs all the time. I saw this giant scar right here where I was like, no, I think it'll be okay to do this dog without the bike yeah. pants. Yeah, that was a bad idea. My wife was like, don't do it. And I'm like, I'm doing it. I told you not to do it. So like they're, you know, they're, but the idea is I fight with them and they fight with me. And it's like, you're not getting away with this without a fight. And that's the you know, task of the time. And, um, but they're, they're very familiar and comfortable with that so what I have discovered is that spaying and neutering the dogs does not have very much immediate behavioral change. And that's typically the reason most people do it, is either calm a male dog down, which rarely works in a working line. Um, the, sometimes people will spay the females because they don't want to deal with the heat cycle. And because every six months the female will leave for about two weeks and then she's breedable for about three to five days. And, um, and so some people are like, that's nasty, I don't want to deal with it. There's easy ways to deal with it if you want to keep them intact. Um, but what I have found is it tends to shorten their working life, not necessarily their protection life, because when they're bonded, they're equal, they'll protect them once they've been over, you know, through the stress inoculation process. Um, but if you do any kind of other work with them, especially any kind of set work, they tend to, to shorten that working life by about two years. So they, it's kind of like they, they mentally grow old about two years. And uh, so instead of getting like 11 years of work out of them, they get eight or nine. And um, in the protection realm, that you know, you're only getting about 10 years of, of lifespan of the dog by the time you get it, as a general rule, um, that's a big So you can do it, but I generally say I encourage you not to. So initially, when you take, if you get a, a trained protection dog from us, we are used to sleeping in a crate at night. And so what we do is we encourage you, uh, you know, put your dog in a crate at night, but we recommend that you put the crate where you want the dog to sleep, either with an open crate or with no crate in the future. So typical is in a bedroom, right? I want the dog in the bedroom with me, um, but eventually I don't want it in a crate. So you do the four to six feet bonding process with the dog, they sleep in the crate every night, the crate is where the dog is in the every night. And then we go through a process with you where we teach you how to open the crate door. Uh, initially they're tethered, and then once they prove themselves with the door open and being tethered, then you can untether them, and, uh, and then eventually you don't have any meat on them at all. So that takes about six months, that process. And, and then some people just want to sleep on the bed with them, and they tend, especially once they're bonded, they're like, oh, okay, I'll just stay on the bed with you. And they generally don't go rope around the house and stuff like that. But the problem with doing that too soon, there's always trade-offs, right? 
is there's going to be times when you need to leave and leave that dog to be in that crate. Because the dogs, especially the first two and a half, three years, they have legitimate issues. And so you leave a Malinois outside a crate with nothing to chew on, you haven't trained them not to do it, you'll come home and your couch tasted delicious. <laughs> and so, um, as a general rule, you know, I just go, you make whatever decisions you want in your life that your dog has. But if you do this, expect that. Like, don't call me fussing at me about your couch being chewed up. You didn't put your dog in a crate before. That kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, eventually we went there. So all of my personal dogs, for her, my uh, German Shepherd over there, that's one of our personal dogs, they sleep on the bed or in the room with us. In the king size bed, and she gets that much of it, and I get that much of it. <laughs> but yeah, they're with us all the time. Yes. And, and the reason I recommend them being right next to the bed is if you hear a noise in the night, first of all, they'll let you know if somebody's not like somebody, if somebody sneaks up to your bed and is standing at the foot of your bed and you have a dog in the room, that dog didn't do its job. Right? <laughs> Just because they're afraid doesn't mean they're not aware, alert, and knowing what's going on in the area. So in their hearing, a lot of times we think of them having better hearing than us. It's not really better in the ranges that we both hear, but they have ranges both above and beyond our range of hearing noises that we can't pick up because we have limited audible range that we pick up over here. And, uh, and they have a, a broader range than we do. So they hear a squeak or something like that, and they're like, hey, what's that? And usually they're like, oh, oh. like, hey, there's something out there that's not normally there. I'm picking up a new noise. And you wake up, you go, first thing you do is go, whoop, and open that crate door. Right? The second thing you do is stand up and get your pistol or shotgun, whatever your home defense gun is, and you go, let's go check it out together. And then you go out and check it out together. And so there, there's very few times when in real practical terms, it would make much of a difference, but it's still, there's that one or two possibilities, right? That we go, yeah, I just want to go outside the crate. Yes, ma'am. Uh, so, big, um, like, livestock guarding dogs that weren't intimidated by wolves or bears and so on, yep. they also translate well into good, uh, good protection dogs. dogs. On some, in some situations they do, the, the, problem with the, expecting a livestock guardian dog to be a family protection dog is one of the things, and then there's a few variations, this is not all the same, right? There's the Pyrenees, the Anatolian Shepherds, and a couple of the others. Those are the ones that have been most interested in. Um, but as a general rule, those dogs have been bred, so not trained, but bred to not bond to humans and to bond to animals. And so when they're puppies, you take them and put them in their wire crate, you bring them around, the chickens or the sheep or whatever it is that they're going to be guarding when they grow up, and they learn, hey, these are like part of me, they're around me all the time, and then you release them out of their crate, they spend time around their animals, and then they just eventually kind of look at those animals as if they're their, their pack, right? And then, well, the chickens aren't going to guard themselves, but the, the shepherd will, this is still my pack, but I guess I'm the only one protecting everybody, so I'll go out and bark this coyote or whatever. The other thing is, not that they won't engage because they certainly will, but the first instinct that they breed into them is to bark. But if you draw a knife and start running at me, or you draw a gun and, and you know, present like you're about to start pointing it at me, now I can send my dog to you, and I don't want the dog to sit here and bark at you because that's your natural tendency. You could probably overcome a few of those things, but I'll tell you, there, there are dogs other than these that are common in what you might call the personal protection realm, some of the King Corsos, um, I think there's issues with using them for that, but it's a popular one. Uh, Pitbulls, obviously, some of those are trained for that. 
but nobody that I know of trains specifically focuses on livestock guardian dogs as personal protection dogs. Yes, sir. Question: uh, When you, um, for you, yes. do you do you continue to train them um, to, in fighting, like in self-defense, after you after you sell the dog? Like I know you do the five years, five years. But yeah. So that, every time you do a follow-up training, training <clears throat> we continue to advance your dog. So I do tell people sometimes. If you want a family protection dog, but you can't afford a family protection dog, and you do the follow-up training, which is quarterly the first year and then semi-annually the second year, um, by the end of that second year, your dog will be like 95 to 99% of what the family protection dog would have been. Now, I'm also doing the same thing with the family protection dog, right? If you start a family protection dog, we're continuing to push them into other scenarios. We get into some more like semi-tactical scenarios. We do a lot of custom scenarios and things like that. Like I have clients who are big golfers, right? And they ride around their golf carts all the time. Well, golf cart defense is different than vehicle defense. There's very nuances to it. So we may work that. But um, we continue pushing the dog every time we're training. So we, we check to make sure the dog is where it needs to be and hasn't you know, lost some obedience or something like that. If that happened, then we need to work to get that back. But assuming that you're following, you're keeping up with your dog, they're they're good to go. We do our first like half a day and it's like, yep, you're solid. All right, let's start working attack on handler scenarios. And I start ha having you set up different things and I attack you in various different ways. Um, let's do vehicle scenarios. We bring the vehicles out and you're either outside packing, you know, putting your groceries in, or you're inside at a traffic light or something like that, and I come in and, and then the, the dog starts being introduced to the girls. So we continue to progress the dogs. If they're uh, family protection dogs, we'll start using various different kinds of weapons. We'll start using multiple attackers. We'll have two guys with knives rather than just one guy with a knife. And we start, we just continue developing the dogs throughout that process. Okay, so even after, so say after like the five years are over and we're kind of on our own with, with the dogs, uh, are they, was there a chance that they would forget the fight training or do you have to So would they, when they're a little rusty, like anybody who trains to fight and then doesn't fight for a long time, you still kind of know how to fight, right? If you knew how to box at one point, you never forget how to box. Amen. But your, your speed, your reactions, your, hey, I'm used to getting punched in the face, but I haven't been punched in the face in a year and a half. You get punched in the face and it's kind of like, okay, I remember that. It's not as bad as it would have been if I'd never been trained. But yeah, okay, like I'm remembering quick now, right? And so your the quickness, the response, the ability. So when you get stressed, you get tunnel vision. When you fight a lot, whether it's for a sport fight or whatever, you, you get over most of that stress. And so you're able to keep your peripheral vision. You're able to still listen and hear other things going on. When you're under high stress, you lose a lot of that. Well, if you haven't fought in a while, the fight is more stressful than if you've been doing it consistently. So we generally recommend at least once a year follow-ups. Um, some clients do it, some clients don't. But it just kind of keeps the dog you know, sharp on what they're doing. And um, it's not required. The thing that you really lose if you lose anything is the responsiveness to the out. Because again, if the dog is stressed more than normal because it hasn't fought in a long time, they sometimes will get auditory exclusion. So you may be telling them out and they don't out because they literally can't hear you telling them. Right? Just like if you've ever fired a gun in any kind of even moderately stressful environment, um, like hunting is a good one, you typically don't hear the blast of the gun when you're hunting. And you typically don't even feel the recoil, right? You might go to the range and go, this gun sucks to shoot. It's not a fun gun to shoot. It's nice to carry around in the woods all day long because it's light. But I shoot it, it kicks the crap out of me. But when I'm hunting, I come back after shooting five caribou and I'm like, why am I all bruised on my shoulder? <laughs> oh yeah, I fired my gun five times. So I never heard the blast, I, I never felt the recoil because in the moment I didn't feel it. My brain shut all that out. So sometimes what they shut out is auditory. So 
you know, some of those things you may lose if you don't do fight, fight training with them for a long period of time. Just to tell us a few questions, and you do this, um, the, the follow-up stuff on the open classes on the Saturday thing? We do it on Saturday if you want to come for that, and we also do, so for my clients, we have, so I don't do this with people who haven't purchased dogs for me, um, but we have uh, follow-on training, like schedules and things like that, and we schedule with you, you can come in for a week, you can come in for three days, uh, or you can just come for a Saturday class. Yep. So I want to answer everybody's questions who has them. We've got about 10 minutes. Yes. Thank you guys for reminding me. So after we're done with this, if you still have Fortress Canine Podcast.